0: Hey, before we get started, did you know that you can get continuing education for this podcast? Just head over to academy.flightcrit.com to find out more information. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome to this episode of the Flight Crit Podcast, your place for pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport education. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be kicking off a series on endocrine emergencies, starting with adrenal disorders. And while there's a lot of great information you can glean from the audio portion of this podcast, I highly recommend you check out the video that goes along with it over at academy.flightcrit.com, where you can join for free and preview this video in its entirety. So with that, I want to invite you to kick back, relax, and enjoy this episode on adrenal emergencies.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Flight Crit podcast. My name is Hunter, and today we're going to be talking about endocrine and some diseases that go with it. So let's get started. A little bit of A&P to start. Remember, there's two adrenal glands that sit on top of our kidneys. Those adrenal glands have an inner and outer layer, the inner being the medulla, the outer layer being the cortex. The adrenal cortex then has three layers within it. We have the zona glomerulosa, zona fasciculata, and zona reticularis. Each of those layers are responsible for releasing certain things that are going to help us diagnose and treat these disease processes. The zona glomerulosa is going to release aldosterone. Zona fasciculata is going to release our cortisol, and zona reticularis is going to release our androgens. So we're going to talk, talk, talk about first, excuse me, talk about first the cortisol and specifically the zona fasciculata. So cortisol is released from messages coming from the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary gland. The hypothalamus is going to release CRH or cortisol releasing hormone. The anterior pituitary gland will then release ACTH. And finally, of the adrenal cortex will release cortisol. <clears throat> now, I want everyone to remember that in a good functioning endocrine system, this should always be a negative feedback. The adrenal cortex will release cortisol, which should then tell the anterior pituitary gland and hypothalamus to release less of the CRH and ACTH. This is how it should normally work. Cortisol has a lot of functions for us, but essentially it's going to help us in our stressful situations and our fight and flight situations. It's going to help out with gluconeogenesis or creating no sugar, which is going to happen in the liver, lipolysis and proteolysis, enhanced catecholamine effect. This is where we're going to kind of see that high blood pressure that we're going to see in our Cushing's disease. It's going to help suppress inflammation. This is where we're going to get our patient population that usually will present with this Cushing's and or our adrenal insufficiency. That's because disease processes like rheumatoid arthritis, irritable bowel syndrome, and asthma, these patients are on chronic steroids to help decrease that inflammatory effect from their disease. There's also immune effects that come with this as well chronic steroid use can decrease your immune response because it will decrease the effect of things like interleukins and B B cells and T helper cells. There are some effects on the brain. We're not quite sure how that works, but um, some of your patients presenting with this can have some neurologic um, symptoms. Essentially, what it's doing is, is charging up the battery and getting us ready for the flight or fight response. So Cushing's syndrome has everything to do with cortisol. I remember C and C, Cushing's cortisol. And Cushing's syndrome is increased cortisol levels. So some of the reasons for this is it's either happening within the body or we're doing it and we're giving a patient or the patient's taking a ton of steroids, right? Some of the endogenous causes would be tumors within the pituitary gland, Tumors outside of that would be lung cancer, small cell lung cancer, or other cancers. And tumors that are on the adrenal medulla, or the adrenal cortex, or the adrenal gland, specifically, itself. These tumors causing this hyperactivity of these organs to increase or decrease ACTH levels, and ultimately increasing cortisol levels. Like I said, one of the more common things we're going to see is your patients taking chronic, chronic steroids and increasing their cortisol levels. Brought this slide back because ACTH is going to help us a lot with diagnosing, knowing where this is coming from, okay? So if someone's taking a lot of steroids, the adrenal cortex is gonna increase its cortisol levels, which should tell the anterior pituitary and hypothalamus to decrease CRH and ACTH. Well. That's great. If someone's taking a lot of steroids, we should see a low ACTH level, right? It's exogenous cause, secondary, because that negative feedback loop should be working. However, if someone has a tumor in let's say the anterior pituitary gland, it's causing overreactivity. the ACTH levels are going to be very high. So we're gonna talk about this in a little bit, but remember our ACTH levels, one of the diagnostic tests we're going to do can definitely help us to see uh, more so where we should be getting our films, right? MRIs, CTs of the chest, stuff like that. So some of the classic kind of common findings you're gonna see, and I think everyone's pretty aware of these, so we don't have to go super in depth. We're gonna have that large buffalo hump, the moon face, um, hairy-like features. Um, Bring those up, sorry. There could also be a breakdown of the muscle wasting, uh, osteoporosis. These patients um, can have some cross reactions with mineral corticoids, so their labs can be out of funk, meaning they can have low potassium, high sodium, hyperglycemia, definitely one of the ones, and also high blood pressure because of that increased catecholamine effect that we're going to see. So let's talk about diagnosis. So some of the diagnostic tests that we're going to do for Cushing's is, one, a 24-hour urine test. When we do this 24-hour urine test, we're trying to see if there's a bunch of cortisol in the urine. And I think it's right around about times four of the normal cortisol levels is going to be diagnostic for possibly Cushing. We also can do another test called the dexamethasone suppression test. This test we'll talk about a little bit more in detail coming up. Because I think it's nice to see that diagram again, and I'll explain it for people listening on the podcast. Another thing we can do is check someone's saliva for cortisol levels. They will do this at night, because if you remember, cortisol levels are actually the lowest at night, um, and highest right when you wake up. And this is why you wake up and you're all stressed out. No, so we will usually check that at night, and if those levels are elevated, that's also another indication. Last but not least, we'll check our ACTH levels, which can help more so diagnosing where this um, cause of cushing's is coming from so the dexamethasone suppression test what we're going to do is we're going to give a dose of dexamethasone what that should do is it should tell the anterior pituitary gland to stop making acta okay because if we're giving this dose of dexamethasone it should increase our our uh, cortisol count acutely and that in turn, negative feedback, should tell the anterior pituitary gland to slow down its ACTH production, right? So that's what we want to see. That's a good test. If we're giving this cortisol is going down and ACTH is also going down, that's going to help us diagnose this patient. That could be something we see with an anterior pituitary carcinoma tumor. Because if the anterior pituitary is releasing a ton of ACTH, when we give them this dexamethasone, we increase the cortisol, we would hope that it decreases the ACTH. Now the question is, what happens when we do this test and there's no response? We give the dexamethasone and the cortisol stays the same and the ACTH doesn't really care. Well, that's where we break it down that there's other causes that could be doing it. One of those would be an ectopic cause. So that's a cancer or something outside of this nice loop. Okay. So that could be like lung cancer and other stuff like that. So this guy up here, this this ectopic-like cause is like, I don't care. I don't care about the increased cortisol levels that you just made. I'm cranking out ACTH no matter what. Another thing that we can see is tumors of the adrenal gland itself. If there's a tumor on the adrenal gland, increasing the cortisol is not going to do anything because that's not helping the negative feedback loop. So, again, if we're doing a dexamethasone test, okay, dexamethasone suppression test, more like, we should see our cortisol levels go down because we're giving them cortisol. It should decrease our ACTH because of the negative feedback, and that would be a good indicator of an anterior pituitary tumor, and that's one of the more causes of it. Now, if this doesn't work, it can be an ectopic cause, or it can also be um, a tumor of the adrenal gland itself. Well, how do we know which one? That's where ACTH levels come into play. Remember, endogenous causes can have high or low ACTH levels. Ectopic causes like lung cancer and our anterior pituitary tumors are going to have high ACTH levels. Something like a tumor on the adrenal gland, because it's all the way over on the right side here, is not going to have anything to do with increased ACTH levels. So if someone does not respond to this dexamethasone suppression test, then we need to check ACTH levels. If the ACTH levels are high, then we know it's probably an ectopic cause. Because that is more primary, it's coming before the adrenal cortex, so it's releasing a lot of ACTH. If the ACTH level is low, we know it's more so coming from the adrenal cortex itself, because that's all the way at the end. So. I just want to break that one down a little bit better. It does you know, maybe I confuse people more and I'm sorry for people listening on the podcast. This is definitely one, I think it helps to look at this, but I hope that helps a little bit. So when we talk about treatment, if this patient's coming more acutely, we're going to focus on some of the metabolic things we need to take care of. So the high blood pressure we might be seeing, um, their labs might be out of whack. We need to take care of that. But we also need to decrease this cortisol fast and we need to figure out where it's coming from and how we can treat that, okay? So some of the things we can do is we can give oral medications to help bring that down. And these oral medications are gonna be adrenal steroid inhibitors. So one of them is ketoconazole. We can also get materapone. These things hopefully will decrease that ACTH level, decrease the cortisol production because ultimately that's what's causing this high blood pressure, these um, issues with their mentation um, and some of these labs that we're seeing. So we're trying to give them that fast, get that on board, um, and then we're trying to figure out where the cause is coming from. That's where, again, we're trying to run these dexamethasone suppression tests and so on and so forth. Um, if that's more endogenous, now if it's an exogenous cause, and that should kind of be proven in their medical history, if they're an asthma patient, rheumatoid arthritis patient, something like that, we try and taper off these steroids. We can't just stop the steroids. okay? If we do that acutely, just be like, hey dude, stop taking your steroids. What happens over time when they're taking these chronic steroids is they're always having these increased cortisol levels. If the cortisol levels are always high, well then the anterior pituitary gland is releasing no ACTH. He's like, well, you got it. You don't need my help. Well, the ACTH is what is stimulating that Adrenal medulla, I'm sorry, that adrenal gland to release cortisol, specifically the zona fasciculata. If it's not stimulating the zona fasciculata and that adrenal cortex itself, it's going to start to atrophy, okay, because it's not working anymore. And those, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. So if they're not creating cortisol from the ACTH, it's going to shrink in size. So if you just stop the steroids, what's going to happen? If you just go cold turkey on the steroids, that adrenal fasciculata, Okay, the adrenal cortex itself, it has not been making steroids by itself. Now it's really tiny and small and it doesn't have the legwork to do it. So we need to decrease these steroids slowly. So as that level comes down, the pituitary gland starts to be like, oh, I got to kick back on. I got to start getting more ACTH and therefore starts priming up that adrenal cortex again. He starts growing back up into a big guy again and then he can release his own cortisol. So we don't just start stop these people cold turkey. With our cushings, however, though depending on the findings, uh, whether that's MRI or a CT scan, some of these patients are going to need surgery. Um, uh, some of the things they can do is take out the adrenal gland and then surgery on the parathyroid itself. Next, we're going to be talking about. work anymore. We're going to be talking about the zona glomerulosa and specifically aldosterone. That's what we're going to talk about, our adrenal insufficiency, our primary adrenal insufficiency, or Addison's, and then our adrenal crisis. So aldosterone, there's a lot of different things for us. So aldosterone is primarily um, told to increase or decrease for different reasons than our Cortisol. Cortisol is going to listen more to ACTH, whereas aldosterone is going to kick in with high levels of potassium, and then also from angiotensinogen 2 or that renin, uh, the RAS system. So a little bit two different reasons for them to turn on. Now remember with Cushing, there is some cross-reactivity with mineral corticoids from our cortisol, but I want you to remember that the triggers are a little bit different for these two. So aldosterone does a lot of things for us. OK, it's going to work more in the collecting ducts um, within that lupa henle. Some things it's going to do, it's going to help reabsorption of sodium. And then it's also going to kick potassium into the urine. So it kicks on that sodium-potassium pump. Okay, As the sodium comes in due to osmosis, we're also going to get a lot of nice water to come into the blood vessels as well. So it's going to reabsorb that sodium and water, help out increase the blood volume, and then kick out the potassium into the urine. It also has some nice effects with bicarbonate and hydrogen. Okay, it's gonna help reabsorb the bicarbonate into the blood and then waste out that hydrogen into the urine. So it definitely has effects on our pH and it's gonna help a little bit with that buffering system. So if you remember all these things that it does, okay, it will help you understand when we have adrenal insufficiency or an adrenal crisis. So it's going to increase our blood pressure, it's going to increase our sodium, it's going to decrease our potassium, and it's going to increase our pH level. When we look at adrenal insufficiency, now we're going to talk about primary and secondary, but I just want you to think overall, adrenal insufficiency is going to decrease our levels of aldosterone, cortisol, and androgen levels. Some of the causes are primary and secondary. Our primary causes are usually going to be our autoimmune, our TB, our AIDS, hemorrhage of the adrenal gland, um, and other things like that. When we talk about primary adrenal insufficiency, we're talking about Addison's. They're kind of the same thing. Addison's is primary adrenal insufficiency, an autoimmune disease, TB, something causing deficiency of that adrenal gland. Secondary is usually going to be our chronic steroid use. These are people that are taking chronic steroid for inflammatory-like reasons. Sometimes people are getting steroid injections for pain. Um, And uh, recently they've been saying that uh, chronic opioid use um, can also have an effect on it as well. I kind of want to skip forward and I want us to look at more primary versus secondary, because if we understand primary versus secondary, it's going to help out a lot with understanding how the diagnosis works, And understanding the labs and treatment and everything like that so remember in the adrenal cortex we have the zona glomerulosa zona vesiculata and zona reticularis the cortisol like i said is going to be stimulated differently with acth rather than the zona uh, glomerulosa or aldosterone is going to be stimulated more from potassium and angiotensinogen 2. primary effect we are talking about the adrenal gland itself. Something is attacking the adrenal gland, okay? So the adrenal gland itself is depressed. Everything the adrenal gland does is depressed. So our aldosterone, our androgen levels, our cortisol levels, all that is gonna be depressed. So autoimmune, TB, AIDS, all these things, when it's a primary issue, the entire adrenal gland, everything that makes it up in that cortex is depressed. So because of that, When we're not releasing our levels, specifically cortisol, what happens is the ACTH levels increase. Why? Well, the adrenal cortex isn't doing its job. So because it's not releasing what it's supposed to, the anterior pituitary is knocking on his door and saying, hey, I'm giving you all the ACTH in the world. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? So in our primary, we're going to see high levels of ACTH, high levels of ACTH, but our cortisol or aldosterone, other things like that are gonna be low. Because our ACTH levels are high, ACTH also, to make it more complicated, works on melanocytes. So hyperpigmentation is always something we look for with these adrenal insufficiencies, but you're gonna see it more with your primary adrenal insufficiencies. Why is that? Because ACTH levels are high, ACTH talks to melanocytes. So if ACTH level is high, Our melanocyte level will be high. Therefore, we'll get more hyperpigmentation happening. When we look at secondary causes, which is usually chronic steroid use, we kind of touched on this before, but remember, when we're giving someone steroids, the cortisol levels are increasing. Therefore, the uh, anterior pituitary gland is like, this guy's got it. He doesn't need my help. So secondary, our ACTH levels are low because the anterior pituitary doesn't feel it needs to stimulate an adrenal cortex because it thinks it's making a ton of cortisol already. So our ACTH levels will be low here. So we're giving a bunch of steroids. Cortisol levels are high. The anterior pituitary gland is like, he's got it, doesn't need my help. ACTH, back off. So we have low levels here. Now... Because we have low ACTH levels, our cortisol level is low, we understand that, we get that. But this is where the aldosterone comes into effect. When we talk about aldosterone, it lowers potassium, increases sodium, and has everything to do with increasing our pH. That's where we're going to see more in our primary. Because in our primary, everything in that cortex is depressed. So we have less aldosterone being made, So we're going to see the effects of low aldosterone, which is the opposite of what it does. So our potassium is going to rise, our sodium is going to decrease, and our blood pressure is going to go down. And that's also because of the cortisol, but our blood pressure is also going to decrease. In secondary, though, the ACTH level is low. The zona fasciculata is affected. Not so much the other guys. The zona glomerulosa, he's going to do his own thing. Because remember, aldosterone he really cares about potassium and he cares about angiotensinogen too. He doesn't care so much about ACTH. That's a cortisol thing. So remember, in our primary, everything is low coming from the adrenal cortex. Everything is low. Sorry, people for watching the video. I'm going back and forth to kind of show you. Everything is low. Aldosterone or cortisol or antigen levels are low. That's why the aldosterone effect, the potassium, the sodium, the pH is much more going to be or happening here in the primary effect. ACTH levels are high because the adrenal cortex is not doing its job. The anterior pituitary, anterior pituitary gland feels that it needs to release more ACTH to help it do its job. In secondary, we've been taking a lot of steroids. So the anterior pituitary gland is convinced that the adrenal cortex is doing its job just fine. So it backs off, so our ACTH levels lower. But it's more ACTH levels. It's not the whole adrenal cortex that is diminished and dying. This is not an autoimmune thing that's attacking it. This is us tricking the body in raising our cortisol levels, therefore decreasing our ACTH. But remember, aldosterone does not care about the ACTH as much. So our hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, and our pH issues, we're not going to see as much in our secondary causes, people taking chronic steroids. We can, there's definitely effects, but I want you guys to understand the the primary and secondary. Now, what I was thinking is with these guys taking chronic steroids and their ACTH levels are crap, why don't we just give these guys ACTH? Well, the same thing happens again. If we're not stimulating that adrenal cortex, what happens is it starts to atrophy because it hasn't been being stimulated by ACTH from the anterior pituitary gland. So we can't just give it ACTH and hope that it works. We need to give that guy time. So that's where we're trying to taper these guys off. And it's usually what happens here is the patient's been taking a lot of these steroids and then they just stop them. And then they get sick from something. And that stressful situation is requiring cortisol and we can't give it. Because now that adrenal cortex is atrophied, it's atrophic, it's nice and small, And it hasn't had ACTH in in a long time. So we can't just give them ACTH. This takes time. That's why both these patients just need steroids. They need steroids. That's what's going to help them in these adrenal insufficiencies and these adrenal crises. Now, again, you're probably not going to be doing primary or secondary if your patient comes in and they're crashing. Their blood pressure is low and a lot of other stuff is happening. But it's good to remember these things when you're trying to decipher primary and secondary. Again, the hyperpigmentation is not so much in the effect with secondary. Why? Because remember, ACTH talks to melanocytes. In secondary, ACTH is low. Therefore, melanocyte production is also low. We will not see that hyperpigmentation on people's palms or within the gums as much in secondary than we will see in primary. And this is just to so show the adrenal cortex is going to atrophy and get smaller. Okay, moving forward. So I just want to, for people that are watching and people that are listening, I want to compare primary and secondary. So in primary, ACTH levels are high. Remember the adrenal cortex is depleted. It's being attacked. It's not releasing, it's not doing its job. So the anterior pituitary gland is like, dude, you need to wake up. So ACTH levels are high. In secondary, because we're giving someone steroids, cortisol levels look good. We think they look fine. So naturally over time, the anterior pituitary gland lowers its ACTH. So primary high ACTH levels, secondary low. Potassium, more of an issue, well, hyperclemia that is, more of an issue in primary because the aldosterone is depleted in primary. Okay, so because of that, there is less aldosterone, so there's no secretion of the potassium into the water. Potassium is building up in the blood. And secondary, this doesn't happen as much because The issue is with the zona fasciculata rather than the other issues. Pigmentation, we're going to see more in primary because high ACTH talks to the melanocytes. So more hyperpigmentation in primary. All right, we will go back now to our diagnosis, everyone. Back to our diagnosis. So I feel like the signs and symptoms are kind of vague. Sometimes these patients are... Um, they're going to, they're going to have weight loss. They're going to have, uh, fatigue. They can have some issues mentally as far as neurologic symptoms go. Um, when we look at labs again, we kind of talk about it, but they can have some, and, and I'm talking about the adrenal insufficient patient right now. Not quite, which is adrenal crisis, but we're not in the adrenal crisis portion yet. So these are just the guys that have some insufficiency. So potassium can be low. They can have, I'm sorry. Excuse me, they can have hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, uh, blood sugars can be low, um, just kind of some vague signs and symptoms, and some of these labs can be out of whack. One of the ones that I think sticks out pretty well is eosinophilia. So, in a normal, stressful state, when someone has an infection or trauma or whatever, your cortisol level should increase. And this is the normal person that doesn't have an endocrine issue at the, at the moment. When your cortisol levels increase, it should decrease your eosinophil count, okay? So your eosinophil count should be low. That's with cortisol. And we actually give cortisol to help treat that sometimes. Eosinophilia, or the increase of eosinophil count, would be someone that has adrenal insufficiency. They don't have any cortisol to decrease that level. So if you're looking at your eosinophil account and it's normal or elevated, that should indicate you then we might have an adrenal insufficiency issue. Other things that we can do is a random cortisol test, looking if it's less than 20. That's obviously a good indicator that there is an adrenal insufficiency, because in stressful times, cortisol should increase. If it's not increasing, we're worried about adrenal insufficiency, and then we're going down the rabbit hole to figure out why that's happening. We can also do uh, there's other things like ACTH stimulation tests. So we give someone ACTH um, if this And how this should work, if you give someone ACTH and you check their levels later, their ACTH should decrease and their cortisol level should also go up, right? So decrease ACTH, increase cortisol, because we're giving them ACTH. We're stimulating the cortex to make more cortisol, which should tell the interpotergic gland to make less ACTH. However, especially someone with primary adrenal insufficiency or Addison's, when we give them ACTH, that level will be unchanged because remember, in primary, the adrenal cortex is depressed, so the ACTH levels have been high for a while. So giving more ACTH isn't going to do anything with these patients, okay? And the cortisol level will be unchanged because they've already the, the ACTH levels have been elevated for a while. So why would giving ACTH help them at all? So definitely something we can see with our primary patients for sure. Went, skipped ahead. So, kind of the things we see with treatment, um, with people with adrenal insufficiency, especially if they have primary adrenal insufficiency and all their levels are depleted. Well, they need those levels sometimes for the rest of their life. So, these people need aldosterone. They need cortisol. They need androgens. They need this supplemental, um, because they're not making it anymore. The other thing to watch out with these adrenal patients, especially if they're um, known adrenal patients that have adrenal insufficiency, is they're definitely going to need steroids for stressful times in their life. So we preemptively will treat them before surgery um, and other stuff like that because that puts stress on the body. The body's not able to make cortisol for that stressful time. So um, sometimes those patients need cortisol um, before those stressful times. Patients with secondary um it's it's tricky it's kind of a balancing act i think a lot of this needs endocrine involvement Um, some of these patients uh, need the steroids if they've stopped them or they would try to wean them off the steroids but it's a balancing act because the steroids they need for the inflammatory process but it's also causing issues with the endocrine system Um, so it's definitely a a balancing act with that as well Uh, treatment with the adrenal insufficient patient again kind of as far as symptoms go we're going to treat our potassium our sodium um, and our sugar as we would. Um, and that's not quite the emergency until we get to the fun part, which is the patient with, uh, a adrenal crisis. So your adrenal crisis patients are difficult. I think, uh, thinking endocrine, um, is always something that we tend to forget, but it's, uh, good to keep in the forefront of our brain when these patients come in, um, because these patients present very much like a distributive or a septic shock uh, so, it's helpful uh, definitely knowing patient history with this. If you see a patient that's been on chronic steroids, a patient that's known adrenal insufficiency, that's definitely going to help uh, guide your treatment. But the patients that you don't know and they're just coming off a 911 call and they're very altered, low blood pressure, they look like septic shock, maybe they have a fever, um, these patients tend to get treated like septic shock. So, they're going to get fluids, they're going to get pressors, they're going to get broad spread of am- antibiotics. And looking for a source of infection. The issue with these adrenal patients that are um, compromised is you'll notice a lot of times the fluid and the pressors aren't working like they should be. They're not having this response to the pressors, and you're going up on your pressors quickly. You're adding secondary pressors, and they're not responding to them um, as quickly as you would like. When you're looking at the labs for these patients, we've talked about them. But these people in an adrenal crisis can sometimes have the hyperkalemia, they can have hyponatremia, they can have really low blood sugar, so you're starting a dextrose drip, um, D5 with normal saline, um, and trying to treat those uh, symptoms while you're also trying to keep their blood pressure up and stuff like that. Again, some of the other, those labs aren't always super helpful, I don't think, because we kind of just show that they don't always have the high potassium, they don't always have those issues. Um, so... I, wouldn't, I, I don't know if I don't know, and this is all personal throughout this lecture. Um, I should have said that before, but it's all personal uh, opinion here. Um, I don't know if they' always I don't know if it's always great to rely on labs because the labs can always change depending on why they're having adrenal insufficiency. But the biggest thing is these patients are getting steroids, whether it's secondary primary or secondary, these patients need steroids. So they're usually going to get the uh, steroids can be 100 milligrams. That 100 milligrams is going to usually um, be repeated every eight hours, and that's going to be of the hydrocortisone. The only caveat to giving hydrocortisone is if they're trying to do a suppression test or something like that, that's probably not going to work. If they're trying to diagnose this patient with like primary aldosterone deficiency or Addison's, and you smoke them with a bunch of steroids like hydrocortisone, well, and then they go up to the ICU or something, and their steroid level is high after the test, well, it's because of all the hydrocortisone. So sometimes if you give dexamethasone, that doesn't interfere with the test as much. Um, so I think that's appreciated if they're trying to do a stem test, um, giving dexamethadone or, or over hydrocortisone. However, hydrocortisone is gonna have some nice cross-reactivity with mineral corticoids. So it's gonna help out that adosterone effect as well, especially if this is a primary um, uh, deficiency in the endocrine system. So uh, kind of uh, trying to figure out which one to use. Either one, this patient needs steroids uh, moving forward. If this patient's a known adrenal insufficiency, if there are known Addison's patients, I don't think it matters. You can give them the hydrocortisone because they've already been diagnosed. Uh, So go ahead and hit them with the, uh, I think the hydrocortisone is going to be fine in those patients. Um, and then I think kind of moving forward, these patients are kind of treated like your shock, like patients, we're going to give them fluids. They're going to get pressors. Hopefully if this isn't an adrenal insufficiency and we're giving stress to steroids, we should see, um, the patient turn around pretty quick. Uh, we should such to see the pressors work well and they should have a good response to it. If they're not responding and you're giving them steroids, um, I think that's kind of where a differential opens up. If this is maybe a cardiogenic shock or a different shock that is not responding to the steroids, it definitely is not an adrenal insufficiency. It could be something else. Um, Also, as far as the hypoglycemia goes, you're giving these patients steroids, hopefully their sugars start to come up so you do not have to keep them on that drip forever. But um, in my experience, these patients uh, can turn around pretty quickly. Um, If there is an adrenal insufficiency and they're getting the steroids they need, then they should turn around pretty quick. But I think this refractory shock to pressors, fluids, uh, hypoglycemia, and the other labs that we kind of talked about should kind of cue you in that maybe we do have, indeed, an adrenal issue. That's about all I have, guys. I know there's a lot of information at once. Um, Feel free to reach out, ask any questions you want. People listening on the podcast, I think this one's definitely helpful to see the visual effects of this one as well. And um, hopefully this helps you guys. Take
0: care. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. I want to invite you to head over to academy.flycrit.com to check out the rest of our courses. And remember, education is good, but excellence through collaboration is much better. Stay safe and live well, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Flycrit podcast. Bye for now.